This week's episode is brought to you by Flybaby app, whose mission is to make travel accessible and easy for women and families. Forget about lugging heavy baby equipment through airports, stressing about packing, and finding baby-friendly accommodations. With Flybaby app, you can rent everything you need to make your baby feel at home, and they'll deliver it to your destination. Just download Flybaby app on your phone and get ready for summer because travel just got easier. And as a special discount for Common Sense listeners, Flybaby app is offering a 20% discount on your first rental when you use promo code Common Sense. That's Flybaby app, promo code Common Sense. Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, where we talk about all that and then some. As most of you know, this pod is an offshoot from my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which is based on my nearly 20 years as a labor and delivery nurse and, you know, all my experience as a mother of many. That book is where I dive deep into navigating pregnancy, prenatal care, labor, and delivery so that both mother and baby come out healthy and well. This podcast is where we get to talk about all that, but a whole lot more because as all you parents know, pregnancy is just the beginning of the conversation. Parenting, motherhood, fatherhood, life with kids, work, parenthood, all of that. There's so much to talk about. So this is Father's Day weekend, and I want to say a very happy Father's Day to all of you guys out there. And, you know, Last year and the year before, I had dads as guests on the podcast to talk about their parenting insights. Last year, we had a big chat about race and fatherhood. And the year before, we shared advice from an older dad to brand new ones. And I loved both of those episodes. I hope you'll go on back and give them a listen. This year, I've mostly been talking with women and we don't have a dude lined up for Father's Day weekend. That said, I do have lots to say about fathers, and I wrote a lot about fathers in the book, and I think my best piece of advice for men and for co-parents is step up right away. Get your hands on the baby and do the work of raising him or her right from the start. Don't wait for guidance or suggestions or to be told what to do by your partner. Just father. Start early and stay on it. You know what to do. Take the initiative to meet your child's needs and do your very best at it. Probably my best piece of advice for women is this. Don't make your partner or your baby's father an accessory or an assistant. He or she is a co-parent. Both parents are capable and suited to taking care of a baby. When mom tries to be the primary parent, tries to do it all, and dad is treated like her little helper... This sets up an imbalanced parenting dynamic that inevitably leaves most of the heavy lifting to mom. It breeds resentment in both parents, it wears mom out, and it doesn't do baby any good either. Co-parent, will ya? I offer a lot of solid advice for fathers and co-parents about how to be a good partner during pregnancy, labor, and birth uh, in the book. And believe me, it's not about being a labor coach and telling women how to breathe. Coaches usually have some expertise in their sport, don't they? And most men have zero experience, you know, being in labor and giving birth. Also, women know how to breathe without being coached. We've been doing that since birth, just, you know, just like dads have. 
If that sounds like I'm downgrading dad's responsibilities during this really amazing time, I'm not. It's just not necessarily the job you think it is. Read the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, and let me know what you think. You know I've talked a lot on the podcast about the creative pursuits some women follow during their postpartum days. It's like after they made the baby and turned themselves into mothers, they had a little juice left over to create something else, like a business, a book, a product, or as it is for most American mothers, a solution for how to manage you know, work and childcare. This week, we're going to talk to a woman who started a publishing company while breastfeeding her baby, and is encouraged, she's encouraging other women to find their voice and speak their truth. Before we get to this week's guest on the line, though, we're going to take a quick break for a quick ad. We're back and ready to talk with this week's guest. Laura Stanfill is a novelist, an award-winning journalist, and the publisher of Forest Avenue Press. Publishers Weekly designated her as a 2017 Starwatch honoree, and she founded the Main Street Writers Movement. Let's get Laura on the line. Hi, Laura. It's Jeannie. How are you? Good. How are you, Jeannie? I am doing good. It isn't often, Laura, that I get to talk to people right here in Portland, and I bet you're about as thrilled with this sunny weather as I am, right? Oh, I have been waiting for this. Every time it gets like this, I remember that this is why I live here. (laughs) I know. I know. It's just gorgeous. Still a little bit cool in the morning, but not so cool that I'm not wearing a skirt, and it looks like everybody in town is pulling on their shorts And we're all so (laughs) grateful for the sunshine. Lack of glorious. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, Laura, I um, just read your bio a little bit. And my first question is this. Who are you and what do you do? I am a publisher. My whole life I have been a writer, a reader, and completely immersed in the literary culture. As a six-year-old, I was immersed in a different way than I am now, but that has been the one continuing theme of my life. And career-wise, I've been in journalism, public relations, and now publishing, but it's all related to words and helping get other people's stories out into the world. And what do you do when you're not being a word person? There's such thing. Uh, Uh, There is. And I happen to know you have a child, so that's part of it, right? In fact, I have two children. Yes, I have a 10-year-old daughter and a 6-year-old daughter. And I am I am mom in between all my other commitments and fit my other commitments around my children. So, it's not always smooth, but it works. <laughs> I know. I don't know anybody that's got it smooth. And if they do, they say it's smooth, it's probably because they have tons and tons and tons of help and they're probably not telling the whole truth. Right. That's true. I love talking to people, especially other mothers, about trying to run a business from home and also be a mom and how messy it is because I feel like it gives other mothers permission to go out and try to do something that maybe they thought they couldn't because they're so busy with their children. Right. So I love talking about the messiness of it and how sticky my floors get on on many occasions because I just don't have the time to worry about my floors. I'm doing other things. (laughs) Funny you mentioned the floors. (laughs) I was, I have a running to-do list that I keep every day. And I just realized today that mop the kitchen has been on the to-do list for two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Maybe today, huh? Maybe. Maybe, but it's so nice out there, Jeannie. We might <laughs> it's doubt- talk about that to tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, it's doubtful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Heck, I don't have anybody coming over to the house for a couple of days. That's not a priority. <laughs> Well, you and I met at my local bookstore, Broadway Books, whom I just love, and where you told a story about breastfeeding and finding your voice. And I'd love it if you could repeat that. Absolutely. So when I had my first child, she was a lot of work and had a number of medical issues. And so I really went from being an independent writer and former journalist and publicist in the world to being full-time diagnostic worker with my child, trying to figure out what she needed, what was wrong, where we we should go. And it was a harrowing and difficult and life-changing experience, of course, as any, as any child is, and especially those first children where you think you know what it's going to be like. And they, then the experience fully immerses you and you're sleepless and trying to figure it all out. So after that first experience, when I, my husband and I decided to have a second child, I was worried about spiraling again into that world where I didn't have connections outside of my child and outside of the way my body was used to nurture then two kids. And the second one, the little one, was three months old when I realized that I did actually have quite a bit of time to read and I wanted to do something to build the local literary community up a little bit more. And I decided at the three-month mark with my second child that maybe I should start a small press to publish other people's work and build community around that. And I look back now and I think, what was I What was I doing? She was three months old. We were so in that sleep feed, sleep feed, rollover kind of yeah. <laughs> baby, the, the baby synchronized swimming where there's there's like, okay, now is there, here's the next step and now we're gonna do this now. And I just, I think mentally I needed a break. I needed a window and I needed a way back to my friends who didn't have children and who are also writers. And I just decided I was going to start this press. And nobody talked me out of it, shockingly. <laughs> Good. Good. So my when our first uh, fiction title came out, I had been working on it in the middle of the night. And when you use Microsoft Word, as you may know, and you use track changes and the comments, yeah. time show up. So I was sending edits on stories back to my first author at, oh, I don't know, 2 a.m., 4 a.m., midnight, odd times for a publisher to be working. And because it was our first fiction title, I really felt like I needed to own the fact that I was a professional, but also I was sending him weird emails at 2 a.m. or leaving these track changes marks at at 2 a.m. And so I told him that I was breastfeeding my child in the middle of the night and I would keep the lights off and nurse her and work on his edits with one hand on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And it just, it was such a product of that moment of, okay, let's do this thing. Let's put a book out 
I put out a very small anthology before that with 42 different Oregon writers in it, all tiny little micro essays about the craft of writing in Oregon. So I kind of knew what I was doing as a publisher, but, but working with one author was very different. And I felt the need to prove myself. And I, so I told him this story. And when his book launched in September 2013, he had the microphone at Powell's and he stood up in front of probably a crowd of 100, I think it was a crowd of 180 people, which is incredible. And he told the entire crowd that I had edited his book with my baby on my boob. And he said it, he said it more professionally than that. But it was this really interesting moment for me sitting in the audience, being really proud of having this book out, and also having shock because I imagined me sitting there in my living room on my couch with my hand on the keyboard trying to do this good professional work with my baby in my arms. And I knew that everybody in the room with us, all 180 people were also envisioning that. And it felt like alarm, I think at first. It was, I can't believe he just said that. And then it sunk in. And I realized that there was so much power in the image of me being vulnerable, being a mother, feeding my child, and also keeping my brain busy, also working on his edits, also having a conversation with somebody who at that very minute, when I was responding to his work, he was asleep because he didn't have a little baby. And it was a way to be in the world as both and to make my motherhood and my my role as now the mother of two children part of my professional experience and make my professional experience an integral part of my motherhood. I am so grateful that happened to you because every time I hear stories like yours where the, it's a story of integration and a story of fully accepting your role as both a mother and a professional woman, and making it okay that we do that. Every time I hear that, it makes it easier for another mother to know that, no, this doesn't just have to be my postpartum period. I can also do the things that I want to do in the world. And I've had so many conversations with new mothers who have done something similar. They've put out an album or they've created a nonprofit, or they've, you know, started a diary, or, you know, I mean, they have some leftover creative juice after having created their child. And they have this very big need to make sure that their identity and their creations, you know, as a person, as a woman, are still intact. And so fabulous things happen during this time as long as women let themselves go there. I'm so grateful that you did. It was really a wonderful experience. And I look back now and people I speak about once a month about publishing uh, to conferences, universities, uh, colleges, writing programs, um, nonprofits. And they always, people say, well, how did you start a small press? And I, I tend to quit back. Well, I didn't know any better because <laughs> publishing is a really difficult industry. And if you don't have any experience or training, you've got to make your way up through 
the rungs of, it's not even the rungs of prestige or the rungs of, of selling books. It's the rungs of information because you have to do things in a particular way or you won't sell your books. So I had to learn all these pieces and it just, it was really exciting to me to be able to learn how to be in the world in a way that would amplify others' voices. So I was nurturing my children and caretaking my kids, but I was also nurturing people outside of my living room, outside of the nursery, outside of the mom circles. And it just, it allowed me to, you know, bust open my heart and just pour even more love into the world. It was really neat. And I, and knowing that it was going to be messy, as I was getting, and once I got into it, recognizing I couldn't always do everything, every time I say that, it gives someone else permission. I, or at least I hope it does. I want it to give other people permission. Yeah, it's fabulous. I, I'm curious about your work path. How, how'd you get from there to here? <laughs> well, as I said initially, I have always loved words. I wanted to start a literary magazine in high school. That's just, I've always been focused on let's create a platform so other people's work can shine through it and we can have conversations. And as a community journalist, that involved me stepping out into whatever community I was covering and turning myself invisible, becoming the lens through which other sto others' stories, comments, opinions, dissenting voices, support would shine through. And so I just, I kind of tried to clear myself out of me the best I could so that I could use me and my ability to write and my ability to type really fast to record and amplify other stories. And that all of that work was about this is who we are as a town or as a community or as a city or as a county. This is why we are this way. And these are the people who are living with us, um, people who have done something amazing or people who believed in something and wanted to share the information or just someone coming through town at an event. Every piece of work I did in community newspapers was about shining the community back in on itself and making sure that it wasn't just the same six people all the time getting the spotlight. I wanted to search out the smaller voices, the quieter people, the ones who had amazing stories, but had never thought to amplify themselves. They had never thought to call the paper or say, I want you to put me in the spotlight. So I would go into those communities and listen and erase myself the best I could. I mean, it's really hard to do that, but I really believed if I could flatten myself or silent, silence myself, my opinions, I would be a better journalist because I would let the people in this community share what was important to them. And it was really good work. And when I started publishing, I kind of had the same feeling. Of course, publishers acquire books. And I've always acquired books that are by authors who are still trying to get their foot in the door in the industry, mostly debut authors who have always wanted a shot to get a book out in the world. But I was the one to give them the shot. They hadn't gotten one before. So I had this sense of empowerment to share other stories. But in choosing books, it's also very much about what kind of goodness I want to put in the world, what kind of model I want to show in the world through the pages of our books and also through my business model and my structure. So 
it's really, it's odd because I always say I've, I had no experience in publishing before I started and that's true. But what's also true is that I knew how to build community. I knew how to listen. I knew how to report and amplify others' voices and recognize that the people who weren't telling their stories were the ones that I needed to reach out to personally and say, hi, I would love for your neighbors to know about you. And all of that sort of informed, definitely informed my way of being a publisher in the world. I started my press as an Oregon-centric press, and we're now national. But it was the same idea of, come, let's share stories. Let's listen to each other. Let's have conversations about these issues in a real world place. In publishing, of course, I have those conversations and and bring those conversations together, primarily in indie bookstores and also in libraries. But it's very similar to what I did in my reporting days, going into the community and listening. I think that everybody has a story to tell and to write, but I think that they're different. And I wonder what you think the difference is between telling your story and writing it down. There's a permanence in writing it down that is very different than, than telling it. I have a friend, Nicole, who is a wonderful storyteller and singer and she gets on stage and nobody can look away. The power of her voice as a musician and the power of her voice as a storyteller rivet the audience. Things stop. Somebody drops a spoon in the back of the restaurant or the bar or the, the music hall and nobody notices the spoon drop because everybody's focused on Nicole. And live storytelling can be like that. And when you go into writing those stories down... It's similar because you are expressing yourself. You are taking something that's passionate, often that's private, and either creating it as nonfiction or taking those same themes and beliefs and turning them into fiction. But even if you never show your work on the page to somebody, it exists in a multidimensional space where it becomes one story. And even if you tell the same story 10 different times, if you tell it on paper, that's the one that you kind of hold to after a while. Um, and it, it's interesting. I think both, both are very important to the literary culture and to sharing ideas. And I do both. I tell stories in public as a, as a publisher, and I spend a lot of time working on my own uh, fiction and nonfiction. So I think that for women, and maybe even especially as they become mothers, um, there's so much of an identity shift that happens during, you know, once you become a mother. And I think that a lot of women do lose their voice and they, their story becomes subverted to their child's story. You know, all of a sudden you go from being, I'm Jeannie to being, you know, I'm. Yeah, yeah. And you really, it's shocking for women to realize that that's happened to them. And their story doesn't necessarily take first place in their lives anymore. Or so they think. And I'm wondering if you found that you lost your voice a while. I did, definitely. Uh, Because I grew up as a quiet 
introverted only child. And because I became a newspaper reporter, I didn't feel like my voice was necessary to the world. I felt like making space was necessary and I was really good at that. But my voice, my relationship to it when my first child was born almost 11 years ago was that my voice was meant to make space for other people's voices. So it was really easy to subvert my sense of identity into just being this child's mother and just going to doctor's appointments and being up with her in the middle of the night. And the story of those early months, I didn't write it down because I was living it. It was so visceral. It was, you know, it's sticky and it's hot and it's sad because your baby's crying and it's, it's scary because we've never done this before. There are all these emotions and feelings that I didn't feel as a writer. I didn't feel like I could use my voice to tell her story as we were living it. I just didn't have, maybe I just didn't have the distance, but it was all so immediate and it was all so passionate that I couldn't wrap my head around it being my story. It was just my body in the world next to this tiny baby who wasn't gaining weight and we didn't know why. What what okay. did she have going on? Oh, she had, I don't know, six or eight different things. Okay. Uh, Got it. <laughs> it was, it was a lot, but we went back to the lactation specialist sometimes every day for weighing five days a week. Uh, but we, when, when things started getting better and she started gaining a little bit more, we kept going back. And I went so many times to my lactation consultant that we saw her for the first entire year of my kid's life. And she came to my baby's birthday party for her one-year party. <laughs> did you have that baby here in Portland? I did, yeah. And it was um, up at St. Vincent. And the staff there was really great. I had a wonderful lactation specialist. And she just... I would go in and I was feeling all the body things you feel when your baby's not gaining weight. Yeah. I, I would just sob and she would let me sob and she would hold the baby so I could sob. And then, and then we would work a little bit more and, and get going again on a better latch or figuring out why I was overproducing or whatever the things were. I had, I had it all. <laughs> you had all the things. <laughs> I had all the things, including mastitis and uh, multiple times. And I had it, that too. Ugh. Is so hard. Um, it turns out she had digestive issues and she couldn't absorb my my milk. So that became a whole other thing that we had to accomplish together. But my story didn't exist. What existed was my baby who was crying and needed to be fed. And so with the second one, I, you know, I was, I, they're four and a half years apart. So I had some years to come out of that nosedive of fear and recognize that we were having these amazing lives as parents now. And as a mother daughter, we got to do all these wonderful things together. And so when I had the second baby, I didn't want to start over at that place of having no voice at all. Um, but I still wasn't ready for my voice. So I channeled it into getting other voices out the same as I had always done. And just knowing that I was there for other people, not just my kid, gave me that sense of identity back. Yeah. It's so and maybe, important. Yeah. And it, and that is where my voice started coming back. And I want to tell you in the last two years, I have, I have decided I want to hold the mic too. I have things to say and I can help other people. If I also share my own stories instead of just packing my stories away tightly. Well, you told me you have a bunch of breastfeeding stories. <laughs> I do. Give me one. 
Got one? Sure. Well, I just, I, yeah, it's with had with my older daughter, it all blended together, <laughs> but she would, she could nurse for two hours straight and not gain any weight and still be hungry. So she would just exhaust herself. And it was alarming because my body was producing enough milk for her to be able to, to feed for hours at a time, but she wasn't satiated. And in some ways, it's a perfect metaphor for motherhood where you give everything your body and brain and heart and background can possibly hand over to this little person and it's still not enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Not it? Yeah. Yeah. Did you end up having to switch to formula or did you find a successful? We found somehow? so. So for a while I was misdiagnosed as not having enough milk. So I had to wake up every hour and pump, um, in the early days. And that led to an explosion of milk and the sputtering coughing child, because I had so much milk, she couldn't handle it. So then I had to pump a little bit and then put her on. But, <laughs> um, later when we figured out that she was having this malabsorption issue, in addition to her acid reflux issue, uh, and that, that was part of the problem they figured out that I could, I should pump and then add a scoop of formula to my milk. And I felt my outsider status among other breastfeeding women so fiercely. And because we live in Portland yeah. and breastfeeding is a big deal and people do it all the time. But if I fed my baby directly off of my breast, she would not gain weight and I would lose my opportunity to get that formula scoop in with her. So I would be out at the park and I'd have to go home to pump and then dump the formula into the bottle and then feed her the bottle. So I had to do I, the planning and timing was really hard because when a baby's hungry, you want to feed them. Yeah. But I had so much milk and I, I, I just, I was stuck and always having to pump. And we'd be at playgroup or the playground and there'd be all these other mothers and their experience of nursing their child was so organic and so loving and so delightful. And I had this little red faced thing who was screaming and I couldn't really, I could, sometimes I did feed her, breastfeed her when I was out in public, but more often I felt obligated to, to carry around a pre-pumped bottle of milk. And then it either had to be for pretty soon, or I had to put it on ice and then she didn't like it cold. So I would have to ha let it heat up. And then, you know, there was the whole thing, but then there was also the conversation with other mothers where they were all doing their daily ballet of joy with their children. And it made it look so easy. They just pop the baby on baby's happy baby's cooing and moving her little fingers or his little fingers and then baby finishes and they baby gets burped and everything's good. Whereas I was doing this like insane tap dance, trying to figure out what my body needed. So I wouldn't get mastitis for the fourth time or whatever it was. Um, and what my baby needed and how I could give my baby what she needed exactly when she needed it, when I was out of the house. And that was really hard. And I felt bad about it too. I felt like I had to explain to other mothers because I didn't have my voice at the time, I felt like I had to apologize for the way my life was working, for the way my baby was unhappy and my baby wasn't doing what their babies were doing. And it was it was a really hard time. I had a, um, not a similar experience, but in some ways similar, where I was able to, you know, I had that lovely breastfeeding experience with my first three kids. 
though I definitely got mastitis with number two, big time mastitis. And I have another story about that. But with baby number four, I uh, got really, really sick with pesky thing, breast cancer after I had her three months got diagnosed and I had two days to wean her uh, before I had to go into the big bag testing facilities and do all that. So oh my goodness. weaned her fast, learned to, uh, you know, figured out all about formula, which, you know, I was a labor and delivery nurse over at Providence. I knew about formula, but not in my own life, not about, you know, what exactly do you get and how do you mix it and how do you do it? You know, and, and then that whole thing about the bottles and all of that. So there was that shock. But then we'd get to the park or, you know, wherever you are. And for me, it was the Nordstrom's bathroom, which was oh. always, that's, I think I mentioned this on last week's episode that you, you come to find out that the Nordstrom's bathroom is the, has the best lounge for breastfeeding when you're out. But I was in there, I think, um, giving my baby a bottle and some lovely, you know, liberal Portland mother came by and said, breast is best. And I was not gracious. (laughs) I was not nice. And I think I said, not when you have cancer. Ooh, did I make her feel bad? And I'm Oh, wow. That's amazing. And you used your voice. I used my voice. I had four kids and I had had it. (laughs) And, you know, she made a thoughtless comment and I, you know, hit her with double barrels. And you know, she was effusively apologetic. And I hope that from then on, she realized, don't go judging women for what we're doing. We know how to feed our babies. We're doing it fine. Leave us the heck alone. (laughs) The judgment, just even if nobody was judging me, I felt it because I received a number of comments like that. And it's really, and I didn't stand up for myself. I think one time I said something about health for my, my first one, because she was so tiny. And I got tired of people coming up to the grocery store saying, your baby's really small. What is she? Two months. I'd be like, no, she's nine months. Can't you see? She's, um, she, she does all these things. I just got tired of responding, but I didn't, I didn't ever use my voice the way I wanted to. And looking back, I kind of wish I had, but at the same time, I've now grown into myself as a mother and I don't have tolerance for stuff like that. And I think that if I were, I don't know, I've I've changed in a way that I could see myself doing that now. Whereas even two years ago, I probably wouldn't, I probably would have apologized or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I know it. The more kids you have, the louder you get as a mom, (laughs) you know, I love that. That makes so much sense. Yeah, I think so. If it had been my first child, I probably would have been a little bit more gracious. But with my second child, I got mastitis um, and I got uh, my my daughter got thrush and I got a yeast infection on my breast. Oh. And I um, went to I tried all kinds of things to get rid of it, went to the pediatrician um, who patted me on the head and said, don't worry, you're a good mommy. Oh, and I was a registered nurse, mother of two. I'd been a lactation consultant. I didn't need to be reassured that I was a good mommy. And once again, I was not gracious. And I kind of gave that doctor double barrels. But my best breastfeeding story about mastitis 
is, it was great. My husband worked for um, an entertainment uh, company in Los Angeles. We lived in LA at the time. And he would get last minute free tickets to all kinds of really, really, really good shows. So I was sick as a dog, literally lying on the living room floor with two babies crawling over me, high fever, sore breast, feeling like you do when you get mastitis. And my husband called and said, I've got tickets to the Rolling Stones concert tonight. Oh. I took a shower. I popped a bunch of ibuprofen. (laughs) I got my sister to watch the babies and I went and I had a blast. I was so sick and I had such a good time. That's so great. Mastitis be damned. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> well, I want to talk about a couple of other subjects. Um, I want to talk about your novel. And you said that you write fiction and nonfiction. Tell me about your novel. Is it The Bright Side? Uh, it's The Bright Side, and it's set in 19th century France, and it's about a family of music box makers. And I actually began this book when I was pregnant with my now almost 11-year-old. So I've been saying I've been working on it for 10 years for quite a while, but I kind of looked at the calendar and recognized her birthday is coming up. And so I've been working on this book for 11 years or more because I was pregnant. And so this book, the early inception, the very earliest drafts and visions of the characters were formed while I was trying to get her back to sleep, while I was feeding her, while I was pumping so that I could then store the milk or put the milk in a bottle and add my scoop of formula. And it really, this book has grown up with my daughter. And I used to tell her pieces of the plot when she was little. Um, now she's, you know, she's busy and I've, I've been continuing to work on the book. So she knows a little bit about it, but not, not the whole story. And it feels really good. I just submitted another draft to my agent and the way the big five publishing works in New York city is you need to find an agent and then the agent, uh, figures out what editors might be the best fit to, to acquire your book. And so that'll be our next step is having it go out into the world and see what happens. So is that agenting, agenting requirement, do you think it's specifically for fiction? No, it's for nonfiction also. Uh, but it, what's specific about it is what type of press you're trying to reach. All the bigger presses require agents because the agents go through, uh, so many manuscripts. And if an agent really believes in a work, then the editors will take a look at it. But if you don't have an agent, it's much harder to open those doors for small presses like mine. I actually almost always acquire manuscripts without agents because I'm trying to get debut careers started. I want to take an author from being somebody like me who has spent years on the page working, learning the craft, studying, and bring that work into the world and share it. Turn that writer into somebody who has a book out in the world. And for that kind of work, I actually prefer working directly with the author instead of going through an agent for anything. But for the big presses, you need an agent. So my experience with um, my second book, um, which is published with 10 speed press uh, that's a imprint of penguin random house for listeners who aren't familiar with that they um found me because i was writing an advice column for fit pregnancy magazine at the time and they reached out and said hey why don't you do a book proposal for us oh wow i've never had an agent and i've always kind of wished i did because i'm winging it you know 
like everything I do in my life, I'm winging it. <laughs> but it, it worked out okay for me. I know it's unusual, though. That doesn't nor that's not the normal path. Well, that's wonderful because they saw you had a platform and you had a voice and you knew your subject matter. And that's the type of nonfiction author that that agents and, and nonfiction publishers really look for. Yeah, it worked Exciting. out really great. And of course, I imagined that, you know, it'd be like, you know, Julie and Julia, where, you know, she sells millions and millions of copies based on her blog, and then she gets the movie and, you know, that's it. All my kids' college educations are earned. <laughs> but it hasn't quite turned out that way, you know. Yeah, it usually doesn't. Yeah. And for small press fiction, especially, we have those conversations from the beginning about what the author wants in a career and what amount of time and energy they'll be able to give to the job of being a writer. You know, are they, are they a mother and having a book come out or they have another full time job and what what are their skill sets so that they can help me promote the book and, and be out in the world as an author? And we try to do it really with so much love <laughs> so that my writers get to do what they feel most comfortable in doing. And in that way, I probably work with them the way an agent would work with them or even, or a publicist. And, you know, I think there's also, there's a difference between the way that many books go out in the world and the way a book about pregnancy and prenatal care goes out in the world, you know? So yes. Yeah. Women are going to buy it when they become pregnant or they're going to buy it for their sister or their friend when she's pregnant. They're not all going to go out on release date and get that book. So it's a slow, it's a slow trickle. Whereas with fiction, you have really the first three months or creative nonfiction, you've got the first couple of months to really make a splash and then hopefully you'll continue to have a long tail on it as the authors continue to do write essays or share columns or whatever the impression is. Yeah. It's a different animal altogether. So I love knowing a little bit about how women work their day. Will you share? Absolutely. In the old days before my press, I would wake up and work on my novel and then go to my day job as a journalist. When I had children, my schedule, I have not ever had sleepers. <laughs> my children do not like to sleep. They like to be up in the middle of the night. And um, that has affected my productivity. But I've been able to do things like work in the middle of the night while nursing a baby and feel empowered by that. And now... I have kids who are both in grade school. They're in kindergarten and fifth grade. And so the morning, if I wake up before them, I can work on my own writing. But more often, I work on business pieces. I, as long as I can get a little bit of coffee into my system, I can send out a couple emails. I can respond to whatever I need to do on social media um, from the day before, the night before. And I just get a little bit done. But as soon as the kids are up, the computer's stashed and I'm on them all the way through school drop off. And once they're dropped off, then it's my work hours. And of course, as you well know, with four kids, work hours around school doesn't always work. There are, you know, in-service days at school. There are sick days. There are come and get her because she just got sick days, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I do what I can within the hours um, that they're at school. And the afternoons, I kind of cobble together if I've got more to do or if I have an event. My husband's really good at, at 
shifting with me so I can get out the door to go to an evening event. And he's a great cook. So he handles that. And it's just, it's all a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I usually have a couple appointments per day, um, whether it's a phone conversation or something that where I go meet with an author or meet with one of my advisors or editors. Um, other times it's a lot of online promotion and publicity. And the good thing about publishing is I have a lot of time before each book comes out. So if I can't get something done on one day, it's okay to do it the next day or the next week. And I am kind of a workaholic and I tend to get a lot done. But if it's a nice day, I also have the flexibility to go walk my neighbor's dog or <laughs> or just sit out in the backyard and read a manuscript. Um, so it's it's lovely. It's a lovely way to be. It's not always effective and I don't always get everything done. But I've been trying to find more joyful moments instead of just going from one work project to the other. It's so easy to do that, especially when you work for yourself, you're running your own business. You know, time is valuable. There's so many days where, you know, I'll be, I'll look at the clock and I'll go, oh my God, it's nine o'clock. And I'll say, I'll, I'll sort of feel like I'm so far behind. And then I have to tell myself, oh, for Lord's sake, it's nine o'clock in the morning. You're doing fine. <laughs> you're not so far behind. It's just fine. Just chill a little. There's so much to do. Yeah. Well, and I'm really fulfilled and excited when I'm working. And so my husband's really good at asking, what are you going to do for yourself? And my business is for myself. I get to work with words. It's what I've always wanted. And my fiction writing, and now I've been working on essays, all of that is for me too. And going out to book events, it's it's work, but it's also connecting with the community and building conversations and really finding out what other people have to say about different narratives. So it's all, but then I don't really do a good job of scheduling unplugged, non-publishing related time. If I am not working at all, I'm probably reading a book, which is kind of like working because I work in the book industry. <laughs> yeah. You may find the time comes when you're not so, you know, in the trenches with parenting. I mean, six and 11, those are, you got a lot of work to do there. Yeah, we're cruising into the preteen years on one end and we're just finishing up the first kindergarten year and yeah. It's a are, lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. So those you're the years are ahead of you still where you'll figure out what else do you want to do. You know, like who knows? Maybe you're a runner. Maybe you're a mad knitter. Maybe uh, you never yep. know. <laughs> you never know. I used to be a mad knitter and that's kind of fallen by the wayside, but I suspect I'll get back to it. Yeah, you'll have time eventually. Yeah. Unless you do like I did and have a couple more kids. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> yeah. No, no, thanks. <laughs> well, Laura, you and I have been on the phone for a while now, um, but I do still have two more questions I want to ask you. All right. All right. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Hmm. Nobody ever told me that you can't fix everything for your kid. And that sounds funny because that's something we should know. But the helplessness, I didn't understand the helplessness when there's a school social situation or when my child wasn't gaining weight. Um, you know, there are so many things we can't fix and we can't help even though we have the best of intentions and really want to help. And that's, that's hard. 
That's really hard. That's a really hard one. And I think that there are a lot of mothers out there that really need to hear that because they, you know, society throughout history has blamed mom for anything bad that happens to a child, you know, up until not that long ago in psychological history, anything that was wrong with a person, it was because their mother didn't do something right. And it's really important that people know, nah, we're doing the best we can. We're mothering our children the way that we are supposed to mother them. But they live in the world. We can't control the world. It's it's hard. Yeah. Really true. Uh, one of my friends who chose not to have kids said something about, I never wanted to have kids because I didn't want to see something so perfect get hurt yeah. and changed by the world. And I've thought about that a lot because I really do struggle with that. My kids have had trouble with, with certain things and, and I've wanted to help. And as a mom, I think I know the right way to help, but maybe there's a better way. So there gets into that second guessing of, did I do enough? Did I give her all the right tools? Was there another tool? What am I missing? And that self-doubt creeping in is, is really hard. Yeah, I do that a lot too. I'll look back on things and say, but what if I did it this way? What if I did it that way? And my husband is really good about saying, we did the best we could with what we had at the moment. We know that we did the best we could. There's nothing else you can do. Sure, in hindsight, you can look back and say, oh, I wish I'd done that. Oh, you know, but we don't live in hindsight. We live in the present moment. And most of this parenting stuff we've never faced before especially some of the really hard stuff that comes from other kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole nother conversation, Laura. And <laughs> we should, let's schedule another episode and talk about that because that's deep, rich and spicy. Yeah. Well, my last question for you is this. Where are you in your life as a mom? I am finding happiness again. I think, you know, certainly there are lots of moments as a mother where I am happy. But overall, it's been we've had a challenging year this year in particular, and with health problems and, and such things over the years. I think I was I've always been scrambling to try to find an answer, a diagnosis, a solution, a fix. And I've settled in now to realizing that we've come a lot farther. We know a lot more about our kids and, and how they, what they need the world to be like to feel safe and how we can't control that, how we can't always give them their optimum commit conditions. And instead of feeling like that's a failure, it's like, okay, well, this is not an optimum condition for this child, but I know how we're going to work through it and I'm going to talk to her and I'm going to say this and she'll be okay. She might not be totally happy, but I'm going to be happy as a mom because I know how to handle this now. So uh, it's really back to what you asked about voice before. I have more of a voice as a mom than ever before and I feel more satisfied instead of dissatisfied, frustrated, worried about things I can't control, namely other children in, in class or whatever, or weight gain is still an issue with my oldest. And I've, I've loosened the grip a little bit and I'm trying to be happy in the moment. And I, I think finally it's, it's going to be okay. Finally, I think I'm there. 
good. Not every day, but. <laughs> yeah, that's good. What I've learned from, you know, my youngest is about to flew the coop pretty soon. And I'm, I'm about done with the hard work of the, of raising children, you know, parenting adults is a whole nother episode, but um, (laughs) what I can tell from looking back on having raised all these kids to adulthood is that you just do your best and it's good enough and your kids will be fine. This perfection thing that we all kind of strive for is just a myth. It's an illusion. It's not real. There isn't a mother out there who's doing things perfectly because there is no perfection. The world's messy. Kids are hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's good when we question ourselves and worry to some degree because it's the, it's mom. I don't know. It's, it feels important to ask the question, did I do the right thing back then or not, because that's how we can move forward when the next set of challenges presents itself. And you can say, okay, well, I wish I'd done this last time. So, so next time I'm going to do this. Um, it's important for the material to dig into, but it's also important to honor the moment and honor the joy and the developmental stages instead of just focusing on, on that systemic, um, problem solution, problem solution kind of worldview. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of joy to be found in this. Yeah. Well, Laura, it's been a lot of fun to talk to you. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for having me, Jeannie. Yeah, we'll talk again. Sounds great. Goodbye. That's it for this week, y'all. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fly Baby App. And don't forget, Common Sense listeners get a special 20% off discount on their first rental when they use promo code Common Sense. Our guest today was Laura Stanville. You can learn more about her work at forestavenuepress.com. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. My book is Common Sense Pregnancy, and you can find that everywhere books are sold. Email me, jean at jeanfaulkner. Com. Tweet me at Jean Faulkner and find Common Sense Pregnancy on Instagram. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.